Hi, everyone, and welcome to Invested, the Rule One podcast. I'm Danielle Town. As part of our Back to Basics series, my dad and I had the great pleasure of having our first guest ever on our podcast, and we started off with someone we were both absolutely thrilled to get to talk to, Guy Spear. Guy is a value investor, a hedge fund manager, and author of a book called Education of a Value Investor, which I've mentioned many times on this podcast. We sat down with Guy, and we had such a good time that our discussion went on longer than the time we had for just one episode. So we're splitting this into three episodes. In this first episode of our interview with Guy, we discuss his experience with the bankruptcy of Horsehead Holdings, how he researches company management, and why he refuses to give investing advice. I think you'll enjoy it. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And we're here for the podcast Invested. Where we discuss Rule 1 Investing. And Warren Buffett a lot. And, and Charlie Char- Munger and Charlie. obsessively. And I'm sure all of you are just who have been listening to this have memorized everything Charlie has said by now. Yeah. So we thought so we'd we, play it again. Well, yeah, so we, we took a little break last week to talk about election stuff. But now we're back to basics again, Dad. We are. Not only are we back to basics, but we're in Zurich, Switzerland. We're in Zurich together. Uh-huh. Super I came over exciting. here. exciting. Thanks for coming to Zurich. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm very happy to be here. And I really like Zurich. It's a beautiful, beautiful town. And I love the Swiss. And I love the Germans. <laughs> and I love this whole place. I'm in love with it. I'm just going to get Melissa to help me move over here for a little while. Yeah, I've got a little town family compound yeah. in, uh, in Zurich. Exactly. But better than that, even. What? It's a really, really a phenomenal guy who's become a friend of mine. Um, he, you guys, we have our first guest on the we podcast do. This ever. We do. This is first time. And we're so honored. Ever. And we're starting at the very top. It's going to be downhill it's, from here. Yes, yeah, sorry, everybody in the future. <laughs> but that's the way it goes. Who do we have, Dad? We have my great friend, who is one of the best uh, hedge fund managers in the world, acknowledged uh, as such by many, many of the top people that we follow. He's uh, become very, very famous for some of the things he's done, not the least of which was to share a lunch with uh, Monesh Pabrai um, and Warren Buffett, for which they paid a crazy amount of money to charity. And it turned out to be, I think, one of the best things in his life. Who is this person? This mystery person that we have is is my great friend who is sitting right here laughing at me as I'm bumbling through this introduction. My great friend, Guy Spear who runs the hedge fund Aquamarine and is the author of the phenomenal book, which I pitch every single class we do, called The Education of a Value Investor, which I will say again, is one of the best two or three books ever written about this style of investing we call Rule One Investing, and which I strongly recommend you read right now. Go get it immediately, you know, punch the Amazon thing and go do it. And I'm not, I'm not, I can't, I can't overemphasize it because I, I read it over and over again to remind myself about the key things about this. And Guy has done a phenomenal thing by writing this book. So with so that, I just want to say hi. Guy. Guy, how are you? Wow. <laughs> this feels good. This feels great. So Guy, Keep I, going. I, I'm not even trying to add to this, but I have mentioned your book so many times on this podcast because I thought it was so beautifully written for somebody who came to this knowing nothing about investing and especially nothing about value investing, I found it to be a beautiful way into the 
what I call the practice of investing, like the day-to-day, how do you set it up to make your life work with an investing practice? And, um, and nobody else is talking about that. And I just thought it was really beautifully written. And yes, everyone go to Amazon and buy it. And I bought it on Kindle and hardcover. So I have it in you know almost every format. I'm just waiting for the paperback to come out. So I, I think, Guy, we're going to get to the thing about how you set all this up. Because we're actually in your office and it's fabulous. And we're, uh, we're in the reading room, uh, which is... The where, library. The library. And I'm taking notes because I, I want to get my office more um, comfortable and more kind of like you have these different things you do in the office. You kind of have to do them in a little bit different places. So we're going to get to all that. But here's how I want to start, if you'll, if you'll allow me. Do you have... Are we queued up with Charlie Munger? At all times. At all times, we're queued up with Charlie Munger. So Guy, what I want to do is I want to play this one little minute that Charlie did with the BBC a few years ago that summarizes his view of what the right thing to do is, the, the basic things you do as an investor in one minute. And then I would love to discuss this with you. This is, I've been wanting to do this for as long as I've known you and we've never had an opportunity, but we have one now. Okay. So these are the four principles from Charlie. We have to deal in things that we're capable of understanding. And then, once we're over that filter, we have to have a business with some intrinsic characteristics that give it a durable competitive advantage. And then, of course, we would vastly prefer a management in place with a lot of integrity and talent. And finally, no matter how wonderful it is, it's not worth an infinite price. So we have to have a price that makes sense and gives a margin of safety considering the natural vicissitudes of life. That's a very simple set of ideas. And the reason that our ideas have not spread faster is they're too simple. The professional classes can't justify their existence if that's all they have to say. I mean, it's all so obvious and so simple. What would they have to do with the rest of the semester? So we've been sort of chortling about this for a long time, Guy, because we've been unwrapping this onion that Charlie says is so simple. We've been unwrapping this onion for a year and a half. We literally started our podcast with those four principles. And now we're calling this series Back to Basics because we're back to the four principles and going into them even more. So, so basically, he's, he's saying, you know, that you have to be capable of understanding. I'm just going to re-quote him, essentially. You have to be capable of understanding the business. It has to have intrinsic characteristics that make it durable. They'd like to have good management, trustworthy, and people with integrity who are talented. And it needs a margin of safety. What do you think? I mean, how hard is that? How hard is it? <laughs> what else would they have to talk about the rest of the semester? Yeah, and, and it turns out it's really hard. <laughs> it turns out it because is. Because we all start off with those goals in mind. You know, and what is it? I was Snow White, but then I drifted. <laughs> and, um, and how can something that's so easy be so difficult? I love that. But it is snow white and then I drifted. It is really, really difficult. And so um, I would actually add a fifth one, having been doing this for some time. Please. Which is to forgive yourself. Ah. To forgive yourself for all your mistakes. 
and to and and to not allow those mistakes to dissuade you from going to that path. Uh, because I've now I'm I've been doing this for almost twenty years, and. I've made plenty of mistakes myself, as Phil knows. <laughs> Those of you who don't know, our friendship began with both of us making the same mistake and finding ourselves in a battle to fight the the uh, the outcome of a of a bankruptcy that just caught us completely by surprise. Yeah. So, but I, I and and so I find myself wanting to forgive myself for not um, meeting those very simple precepts when I look at what I've done in the past and so um, you know I, I, it seems so easy and somebody wrote a book a guy called I think Richard Oldfield wrote a book simple but not easy mm. and so uh, and then there's a there's another Indian guy that my friend Monish with whom I had the lunch with Warren Buffett with has talked to me about Vivekananda which he, and he says take one idea one simple idea and meditate on it Hmm. And think Is that on the it. autobiography of a yogi? Yes, I think that's right. Exactly. That's a great book. I haven't yeah. read it, but I know the little phrase from it. We've both and, read it over here. And Just and, and actually, what? <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, Phil. <laughs> Way to make our first guest ever make him the last guest. But <laughs> believe me, sorry, M- Monish laughs at me many times because he gets through like a book a week, <laughs> and I don't get through a book a week. I mean, I wish I did, but. Actually, it's great because what you guys are doing through the podcast and through the medium of the podcast is you're taking those simple ideas from Charlie Munger and you're forcing yourselves to think about it once a week, at least. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so I want to I plunge in on, on a little bit on because of our, our, our uh, investment in Horsehead Holdings, which turned out not so good, yeah. where I truly thought I had you know, the first box checked. You know, yeah. capable of understanding, simple company. All right, so where did where did we go wrong on this in this in this line of four things? Do you think? Yeah, you know, uh, just to rewind just a little bit, when you get asked these questions like, "So how do you do this?" Now I've learned that something that really helps me uh, when I get asked these questions in kind of professional type situations is I just throw the question right back and say, "Yeah, how do you do that?" <laughs> and I think that the answer is that it's really hard. And any approach to trying to do it is already puts you streets ahead of the vast majority of people. So, and the point, my point about forgiving yourself is that if you forgive yourself for your inability to meet it, meet those standards or to, to do those simple things, then you won't give up. And the, well, the worst thing that happens is that people give up. They try for a year, they try for six months, and then they give up because they like, feel like they've messed their copybook. Mm. And, the, you know, so for your podcast listeners forgive yourselves this stuff is simple but it isn't easy forgive yourselves for the mistakes because believe me phil and i forgive ourselves for our mistakes or at least we try we do that's such a nice thing to say because something my dad says all the time is how easy this is and something i say to him all the time is how difficult it is right and he it comes so naturally to him that he actually doesn't feel that it's difficult and it comes so difficult to me that I don't feel that it's easy. So we come at it from totally different um, inherent abilities. And it's very nice to hear and, and somebody then, who and, is a professional at this. And then I can do something like Horsehead and prove you're right. 
But but actually, you know, what no, I'd say maybe, is... but maybe that actually doesn't prove that. I mean, that's the question, is how do you go back and post-mortem post it? And by the way, what gives you permission to post-mortem it is the, this idea mm. of forgiveness. Mm. Because if, you, if you're not going to forgive yourself, it's going to be way more painful to go back and take a look at it. Uh, that you may not want to do it because it's painful even with the forgiveness, you know. <laughs> if I if I look at Horsehead, um, uh, look there, I you know I think that there's so we know the idea which Charlie Munger talks about in his great talk, Twenty Four Standard Causes of Human Misjudgments, which if which you're, I have not. So, so there is a treat for you and your listeners. It's available in audio form and it's now been written down. And it's, the idea is that if you take a frog and you drop it into boiling hot water, it's just going to jump out very quick. But if you put it into a, a pot of lukewarm water and you just slowly boil it up, the frog would eventually die because it's never going to notice that the water is actually boiling. And so... You know, the the simplest mistake that we made in Horsehead was not to monitor the increase in debt that they engaged in. We were so focused on the economics of this incredible plant that they'd built mm -hmm. that we didn't notice that the capital structure was getting out of whack. Mm -hmm. Now, the management didn't notice either. Mm -hmm. And the management clearly had the wrong attitude towards debt. But it was I feel like it was my responsibility to monitor that. And I didn't monitor that. So... And, you know, and Warren has said many times that he doesn't want to get into a lot of debt, either personally or in his corporation, because he doesn't want to discover what kind of behavior he's capable of. Mm. And I just wish that the management of Horsehead had thought of that. I wish I'd monitored that in the management in a certain way. Uh, you know, we don't know. Um, if, if I ask myself, what is the integrity of the management? If they had not gotten themselves into that much leverage at Horsehead, uh, they might not have behaved the way they did. Right. They might have behaved in a totally exemplary fashion. I mean, yep. they're not, they didn't wake up in the morning with the intent to do bad things to their investors, but they got into some pretty dire straits simply from, for allowing the leverage to build up. And if, you know, I mean, we could get into more subtleties, but I think that that basic idea, and you know, uh, um, it's a commodity related business with a commodity price that moves around that suggests that you should have very low amount of debt yep. and it would have been hard for them I mean they wanted to build this plant the plant was the right thing to do to come to the shareholders and say you know we're going to ask you for more money because we don't want to go to uh, the uh, debt markets to do it uh, but that's a hard thing to do so on, on that if Charlie is basically saying, and I don't mean to jump around if you don't want to, but Charlie's basically saying that having management that are talented and, and have integrity is one of the things they'd really like to have in a business. How have you found it to, 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 to if that's something you're looking at, how hard is that to figure out? You know... <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sitting here just going, how do we figure that out? Well, it's out? a huge I question that, it, that I have and that we've gotten from a lot of people who listen. How do you figure this out when these are people you haven't met, you're yeah. not going to meet, yeah. and you only have third-hand, possibly very scant information on yeah. And And you don't, I mean, according to your book, you don't even like to talk to yeah. these guys because it, you're afraid to be sold. Yeah. So... Um, 
Well, it's hard. (laughs) (laughs) Great, thanks a lot. But but at least we should acknowledge that it's hard. Uh, For me, at least, I think that's helpful to me. And I, I know it's the same idea. I'm pretty sure I know the theory of what I ought to be doing. It's just that it's still hard to do it, which is that um, you don't want to be... So I've changed my view that I wrote in the book on talking to management. I am I willing to talk to management. I was just going to ask you why you don't want to... So you, you do now. You, you, you're yes, but at the right point. Ah. So I think that the key is you've got to look at management's past actions and see what they did. And how do you and do that? Literally, uh, you want to find. You want to go into the last ten years worth of ten Ks and ten Qs, and see how did what did they do in the past? And those are the annual reports and the quarterly reports that yeah. are filed with the SEC. And and then ask why they did it, and was this smart to do it? And uh, and you know, so I would like to believe that every now and then we can find a management team who are making the right choices. Uh, and I'm, I, you know, it's hard. I think there's part of it is just reading the 10 Ks and Qs, but part of it, because that's an extremely time intensive process, is talking to people, not about what their latest good idea is, but going in depth into a company management with other people who've studied the company management to see what kind of people they are and what they do. And I think that some of the great investors do do that. So, you know, and some of the bigger companies that we talk about amongst us, I mean, we, we, we have conversations, all of us, about Jeff Bezos, for example. Of and what, Amazon. Yeah, and what kind of guy is he versus Jamie Dimon? What kind of guy is he? You know, Amazon and Apple and um, uh, Google. You know, they, I would tell you that, uh, well, it's interesting. So the, the kind of, I mean, this is, so I've gone from small cap horsehead, and I've gone to those companies because everybody knows about them, so it's kind of common ground. But but I think that we can see very, very different personalities, for example, between Jeff Bezos and Larry Page and Sergey Brin. So Jeff Bezos, he does all of his venture capital type things outside of Amazon. So he's got a spaceship company like Elon Musk, but he doesn't do it within Amazon. He does it separately. It's blue something. I don't remember the name. Uh, he bought the Washington Post, but again, it's separate from Amazon. And Amazon is very focused on basically delivering stuff that people need uh, at a very at lower and lower costs. But then we look at Google and they have a whole VC arm there. In, in a certain way, Google is um, an extension of the interests of the founders. And they're doing all sorts of things. And they say they're moonshots. So I think that if you start looking at these companies, you start seeing that they have a personality to them, which is around the management and around the, the people who control them. Now, I'm embarrassed to tell you that I did none of this with Horsehead. And I think that if we would have stopped, if we would have been having this conversation about Horsehead a year ago, just asking these questions would have made it obvious to me and Phil needed to take some action. Would it have, though? Because those companies that you just mentioned, first of all, are huge. Their founders are still there and they're incredibly well known and there's been massive press coverage of them for years. Yeah. Whereas a smaller company like Horsehead, not known at all, and its CEO and executives were not founders and yeah. are not inter- internationally famous. How would you have researched those people even more than you did? So, so the first thing where I, you know, I feel like sort of the last quarter of my book, 
has got things in it that I don't believe today. That I've the basic principles are true, but for example, so I I, I certainly think that it's right that you need to collect the information in the right order. Mm. So this, by the way, is another Charlie Munger idea, which is simply he he has this he's expressed this in this talk that you'll now go and listen to, where he says that the human mind is a bit like a, an unfertilized egg. And that the first idea that goes in is the one that dominates it. So you better be careful what you expose your mind to first when you don't know much about a subject. And so when you don't know much about, let's say, Horsehead, you don't want to just listen to the management line. You don't want to read a, a notice board as either as some kind of stock gossip board because that information is going to come in first and will dominate, let's say, my thinking thereafter. But once I've read a lot about the company from the K's and Q, 10Ks and 10Qs, then to start asking either the management or other people to see if, if to see what kind of model I can build up of who they are, I think is a smart thing to do. And I tell myself, if I, I ask myself the question, if I would have either on a, anybody can get onto the um, quarterly calls and just ask. Oh, these are the calls the company does uh, with investors. Yes, that's right. And and you know, ever since about 10 or 15 years ago, there's something called Regulation FD, which requires the company to communicate in the same way to professional analysts as it does to the general public. So any member of the general public can get onto those calls and ask a question. And, I and see, you do see that a lot with, um, with smaller companies. You'll have just John Doe investor asking questions at the quarterly call. And it's amazing how few questions there are. I mean, the management's yeah. ready to answer questions for half an hour, 45 minutes, and there's three questions. Yeah. And so uh, I ask myself, this is where I need to be forgiving of myself. If I would have just asked the question, hey, Jim, you don't own that many shares in the company. This is the CEO of Yes. Website. So the CEO of the company is Jim Hansler, um, and you're taking on a lot of debt. Why? What's you know? up? Yeah. What's up? What's up, Jim? And, and um, <laughs> the fact that I didn't ask myself that question is kind of shocking to me. And and again, huge depths of self forgiveness that need to go into that forgiveness. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. I mean, it really is. Yeah. yeah. You know. And but, we all we all play every kind of game to look back and just go, I could have done it. Well, better. the but, thing is, you've probably invested in other companies that also had debt like that, and nothing happened. Uh, you know, the interesting thing is, is that, so I did have an investment in a pipeline company. Oh, really? Uh, gas pipelines, natural gas pipelines, uh, based in Texas, a company called uh, Crosstex. And the family that controlled Crosstex, uh, they were never going to, so, so they did have, turn out to have too much leverage. And they backed the company to the hilt to get them through a very, very tight spot. And they got through the other side. And my, and, and yes, I had had part of that. That was part of my experience that I uh, incorrectly projected into Horsehead. So in the case of Crosstex, I had owned shares at, so I'd bought shares at $15 a share. They were at $32 a share and in my mind going to 80. Wow. And then uh, the financial crisis hit. And the shares went to $2 a share. Whoa. Oh, my gosh. And then they recovered to $32 a share before the company was sold, around $30, $32 a share. So I round-tripped it from 32 down to 2 and back up again. But that was a management and ownership team 
who were fighting tooth and nail and who were never going to let the banks do bad things to them. And yeah, so I did have that experience. And I, well, obviously now, (laughs) in retrospect, I don't think I will ever make that mistake again. But I think that perhaps talking to, or put it this way, it's not just talking to management, it's asking the right questions. So um, uh, rather than, so, and I think I talk about this in the book, you know, you you want to, I want to get myself out of conversations where somebody's pitching stock ideas to me mm-hmm. and they're telling me how wonderful it is. But conversations where I ask, you know, hey, Phil, what do you think of the management of American Express? And where I'm, and it's not enough just to gossip about it, where I find somebody, after asking enough questions, what do you think of Ken Cheneau? Sooner or later, I find somebody who says, you know, I was at some event and I saw Ken Cheneau make some off-mic comments that were interesting to me. And so slowly you can perhaps build up a picture that is over and above the actions of the management, uh, of, of what the management has done, basically. But I think that you have to have that. And I regret not having had it in the horse head. But- Do you only tend to talk to other people once you've done your own research? So it's very hard not to, but I do think that's the right thing to do. So I've done this with a number of people where I've said, they they start wanting to talk to me about an idea. I say, oh, sounds fantastic. Don't... Like an um, idea of a company they're interested in. Yeah, yeah. Don't tell me anymore. I'm going to go research it and then I'll come talk to you about it. Let Mm -hmm. me go read up on it first. And they're like, no, no, let me tell you. It's like, you know, I really don't want you to tell me because then I'll be biased by what you're telling me. That is, I think that that basic idea is a great idea. It's a great insight. But not to take it where I take it in the book, which is not to talk to management. That's the wrong place to take it. Just sequence the information in the right order. And be aware that there's the windage factor when you talk to management. But allow yourself to talk to management once you've done enough research. Windage. Windage. I like it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know where I got that from, but the idea is that... Dad told me it's a gun term. You know, yeah, so, so you'll know. The, so, so any advice that a lawyer gives you is, is, is often going to lead to the lawyer doing more work for you. That's you know? because why should we bother giving advice that doesn't require anything? <laughs> exactly, I forgot that I, we've got a lawyer in the room. Yeah. Exactly. And, um, so, you, so what Charlie Munger says, this 24 standard cause of human misjudgment is such an amazing talk. He just says in those cases, what you have to do is you have to make an adjustment for the fact that that's, that's where it's going to go. And by the way, every researcher who's after grants, their research always leads to the conclusion that we need to do more research and therefore we need more grants. And obviously the CEO is going to have their own... Um, uh, by the way, you need to just work with a good startup attorney because... I see our job as getting the hell out of the way. <laughs> very rare in very, the case very of attorneys. But it's something you said is really interesting because I, you know, starting out with this thing, this project, this practice, um, I naturally want to sort of bring friends along with me and have somebody to talk to about it as I go. It, it feels a bit lonely sometimes to do it as a solitary effort. And at the same time, having done that a little bit, I feel that sort of group think coming along of, oh, my friend who I like a lot really likes this company. Right. And I don't really want to insult her by 
by not liking it. Yeah. And I don't have, I mean, if there were specific reasons to not like it, fine. I have no problem with that. But when things are a little bit loose, when things are a little bit undefined, it's easier to go along with what somebody else thinks. And I think there's a tension there of how do you as a value investor stay away from the crowd while taking counsel that's warranted? So here's here's the one one idea to help with that is simply um, to establish with the friends that one talks stocks with uh, is we're going to talk about businesses. We're not going to talk about whether we're buying or selling. Oh, and, interesting. You separate yeah. those. Yeah, and we're not going to talk about what's in the por- what I have in my portfolio. I'll never discuss what I have in my portfolio, what you have in your portfolio. We'll talk businesses. We're interested in businesses. We're interested in management teams. We're interested in valuations. All of those are good things. And often I think it's, it's very obvious from what somebody says, whether they own it or not. Mm-hmm. But, you, but, the, but you try to create an environment where there's no obligation to say whether you acted on somebody else's advice to buy or not. And, you know, so uh, a couple of protocols that I learned through various organizations that I just think are so critical is, you know, I want to live my life where I don't tell anybody what to do, ever. Uh, and if you, so advice is just you do when you give advice you give damage you do damage basically and you know the no, idea I is need to learn this one. so 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 Phil I you know let's say that that for some reason I give you some advice now there's there's two you know we have a four by four matrix so either you take the advice or you didn't and either it works out or it doesn't and those are the four boxes so I give you some advice you take you take it and it doesn't work out now you like you idiot guy I can't believe you gave me that advice it didn't work out yeah. Or you, you, you take the advice and it works out and now you feel indebted to me and I feel like you ought to be indebted to me, you know? Or, you know, you don't take the advice and it doesn't work or work out and then I'm walking around saying, you see, you schmuck, you should have taken my advice. Or it doesn't work out. <laughs> or, you, or, or you don't take my advice and it does work out and you're like, he's such a schmuck, I knew I shouldn't have listened to him in the first place. There's no benefit. No win. No win, but what really does work is speaking from experience. So, you know... If I to to address some issue that might come up to say, well, you know, oh, sorry, you're having a hard time with your with your loved one. Last time I had a hard time with my loved one, I found that slamming on the bathroom door while she hid in the bathroom because I was yelling at her wasn't a good idea. So I took a walk around the block. (laughs) And whenever I, (laughs) I'm going to ask Laurie. So the listeners should just listen to Danielle's laughing. It would be fun to have my wife Laurie in the room for that, but but I think that what's so interesting is the minute the minute I stop giving advice, so somebody says I've had an argument with my with my loved other, and I'm like, well, why don't you take a walk around the block? That's giving advice. But then when I say, oh, last time I did that, and you know, the more detail you give, like like yelling at my wife through the bathroom door, which has happened in the past, um, <laughs> they lean forward. You see a visible the person visibly leans forward because they become interested in my story and then they can decide whether my story is relevant to them or not. You can't ever, I don't know what's going on in their marriage or in their lives. So I think the same applies to stocks and I found that a really useful way. So when somebody comes and says, yeah, oh, you know, I've just analyzed this railroad. It's really cool. I'm about to buy it, you know? And then I can come up and say, well, let me tell you about when I owned Eurotunnel and some of the things I experienced when I owned Eurotunnel, mm-hmm. you know, and some of the things that were frustrating to me about that situation. Let them decide what is relevant. Not hopefully they do the same. And I actually have found 
that if I'm in a relationship with somebody, no matter how brilliant they are, if they're trying to tell me to buy something, then there's a kind of a toxicity to that. Mm. And they, Do you they, feel pushed a little bit? And that, and that is the first sign that I need to stop talking to them about stocks, actually. Mm. Because, because you don't want to feel pushed. And, mm. I, you know, whatever's, it's meeting some psychological need of theirs, and you just want to get away from that. I love that you have found a way to take counsel, but keep it essentially an intellectual exercise. Here's what I've found. Here's what you've found. Yeah. And here's what the third guy's found. So, here's what we all found. Let's talk about it. Thanks for listening to the first part of our interview with value investor Guy Spear. And check back next week for part two of the interview, in which we'll discuss with Guy how to know what you don't know, always incredibly difficult, the advantage of managing your own money, how to handle an investment going down, and why finding a moat is like boar hunting truffles in Italy. Talk to you then. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you got to do to go is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.